Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Go check out whatsnextevent.com to read all about our upcoming post-election conference, November 9th and 10th. Tickets are $100 and include a new complimentary subscription to The Dispatch. We've got interviews with Liz Cheney, Ben Sass, Tim Scott, and we're announcing more on the website all the time. Lots of panels on what happens after this election. Our special guest today is Jonathan Swan. You may know him from his memes based on his interview with President Trump, but he is a national correspondent with Axios, and he has new interviews coming out every Monday on HBO. Check them out. Let's dive right in. Jonathan, on Monday's episode of Axios on HBO, you talked to Ted Cruz. It was a fascinating conversation. I'm wondering, there's a lot of people talking about what the Republican Party uh, will look like if Donald Trump loses. But I guess I'm curious, when you talk to Republicans on the Hill now or otherwise, what do they want it to look like if Donald Trump loses? Well, I I think... There's a great fear of one scenario, which is that Donald Trump loses in a race that is extremely tight, that perhaps uh, is litigated. Maybe it comes down to a couple of states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, which haven't covered themselves in glory when it comes to um, election administration. And you get a situation where you've got, you know, Trump claiming victory on election night and then, you know, goes on. And so in that scenario, it would be much more difficult for elected Republicans to disown Trumpism and uh, make the case that this was a an aberrant uh, cancer that needs to be excised and we can start from a fresh page and do an autopsy and, you know, reimagine what this party is, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the scenario that uh, elected Republicans are most worried about. I think if it's an overwhelming defeat, it opens much more space, and let's say they lose the Senate, it opens much more space for uh, a real conversation among Republican elected officials about what the party is and what the party stands for. But really, uh, bottom line is the party's so weak now. Party brands are just so so weak that I'm very skeptical that there's going to be, I mean, even if some sort of uh, 2012 style autopsy uh, commission gets together and decides that, oh, we really need to, you know, uh, be compassionate on immigration and reach out to immigrants and all sorts of things like they did in 2012. I'm just very, I mean, it didn't work back then. And I think the party's only gotten weaker since then. So I think you're going to have a whole bunch of individual decisions uh, that the 2024 Republican field will be making, and you'll have some of them embracing uh, this sort of populism, um, nationalism. You have someone like a Josh Hawley who is not exactly a small government conservative. And then I think you'll have some who are, I would say, more traditional, um, like Ted Cruz, who I think will 
you know, he actually has been pretty consistent on matters like spending and debt and deficit. Um, I think he will, you know, be in that traditional evangelical lane that he was in 2016. So it really depends who you're talking about, but I'm very skeptical of the ability of the party as a, as a construct to, um, to come together and sort of put forward a new vision. Steve? Yeah, I, that's really smart. I think that I agree with that entirely. I don't think there will be a sort of coherent Republican Party vision until there is another Republican president or at least another Republican nominee. Until then, I think it's going to be these kind of these these silos or these these vertical um, sort of uh, constituencies uh, directed by maybe charismatic leaders inside the Republican Party, but unlikely to produce anything looking like a coherent party philosophy. You know, it's I mean, it's it's interesting as you were talking, I was trying to, to think to myself, if I had to describe the Republican Party philosophy in a sentence right now, what would I say? And I don't, I can't come up with a sentence. I mean, you know, for, for, for years, the Republican Party was at least, you know, considered itself, however imperfectly uh, it carried these things out in practice, the party of smaller government. I'm just not sure that's really the case anymore. I mean, I think relative to Democrats, yeah, maybe, but it's not a small government party anymore. Is that is that your sense? Well, it's not even, uh, when you say relative to Democrats, maybe, I'm not even convinced of that. I mean, you had this recent stimulus negotiations, COVID stimulus, where you had, you know, the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, like it or not, he is the leader of the Republican Party as the president. And he was actually saying, I want to spend more money than Pelosi yeah. in the House. I want more. And so he would have happily, I think, gone up to 3 or $4 trillion. Now, there are, to be fair, uh, there is a restraint from the Senate. And McConnell really pushed back on that. And, and you know, part of the reason we don't have a $2.5 or $2.2 trillion spending bill is because of that pushback from McConnell in the Senate. So it would be unfair to say that, you know, that Trump's philosophy has completely taken over the party. But just, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a matter of documented record that before right. COVID, Trump was running up incredible deficits. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, the growth was strong, but so were the deficits. And I had this, this conversation with Cruz where he, you know, he, he, he said, you know, well, Trump's policies have been profoundly pro-growth. And I said, yeah, and also profoundly pro-deficit. And, and by the way, not just pro-deficit in a, in a short-term sense, there were deficits as far as the eye could see in their own budget forecasts, the Trump administration's right. own budget forecast. So not only had they given up on the idea of, you know, trimming back government, tackling entitlements. I mean, Trump has explicitly run against the concept of tackling entitlements. So I don't see... Uh, I, th I completely agree with you. I don't see a situation where the Republican Party can cohere around anything until there is a new nominee for president. And um, just on that, and just yeah. on that spending point that you made, which I think is, is a very good one. Um, you know, I think Ted Cruz has, has been more or less consistent. He certainly hasn't been as vocal about his uh, concerns about spending yeah, no under doubt. Donald Trump as he has been under, uh, as he was under Barack Obama. But the other thing I think that is, that is really striking when you stop and think about it is, 
you look at the House Freedom Caucus, which was in effect created to be the, you know, debt deficit conscience, spending conscience of the Republican Party. It was their sort of their, their main argument. It grew out of the the uh, the Tea Party. It, where are they on spending? I mean, you hear nothing from them about spending because they've basically transformed into the kind of, uh, you know, warriors for Donald Trump. They're, they're the fighters, but they're not fighting necessarily on ideological grounds. They're just fighting for Donald Trump. The, the issues that are most, most animate the, 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 the right flank of the Republican elected party right now, uh, things like owning the libs, uh, you know, going after the media, Ah um, uh, yes, those serious policy issues that really land in Americans' lives. Uh, you know, trying to uh, prosecute the case against the deep state. You know, these are the issues that are animating them. Uh, I I can't remember the last time I heard an impassioned speech from a Freedom Caucus member about um, about the debt or the deficit. Yeah. I can't Even remember it. This the this I mean this I was talking about this with a, another reporter yesterday. The, one of the most amazing things to me about the past five years is you've had you've gone basically five years without um, the leader of the Republican Party, ostensibly the smaller government party, ever making a, a sustained case on behalf of limited government. I mean, this was like the the staple of Republican presidents and presidential candidates for years going back. And in, it was often the case that in, in Republican primaries at the pr- presidential level, they tried to outmaneuver one another to see who could be the, the most outspoken right. and aggressive candidate on behalf of limited government. And there's really no discussion at all of limiting government in this look context. At the closing, uh, look at the closing pitch. So, so you have a situation, someone who knows um, Mark Meadows pretty well uh, pointed this out to me with some sense of uh, schadenfreude. Um, so you have Mark Meadows, who is the leader of the insurgent Freedom Caucus, uh, who, you know, arch conservative bane of the establishment's existence, who had railed against large government and spending and whatever. So he is now the White House Chief of Staff. What is their closing policy pitch? It's we're going to send seniors $200 cash cards uh, <laughs> for, for drugs. We're going to import European price controls. Like you talk about socialized medicine, that is literally socialized medicine. They're importing European price controls uh, into America. So, I mean, this, this is a policy that Trump has put forward uh, to, to rein in drug prices. So, I mean, these are policies that Bernie Sanders, if he was president, would have happily, happily <laughs> endorsed. It's such, it's such an interesting point, using socialism to fight socialism. Uh, Well, let's move to the Democrats real quick. You laid out two scenarios of a Biden victory, one in which it's a narrow Biden victory and one which is a sweeping Biden victory. Do you think that'll make any difference to the mandate that Democrats feel that they come in with in a 2021 Biden administration? Well, it's I think it's more reality than mandate. Um, Mandate sort of suggests uh, something less tangible. If if it's a Biden thumping victory, that would, uh, so if if the national polls right now and the state polls are are roughly correct, that would uh, indicate a flip of the Senate. Right. And if that happens and, and, you know, people like Charlie Cook, who's, you know, one of the election handicappers that most people kind of turn to, 
I think his upper range is sort of 55, 56 Senate seats for Democrats. If that actually happens, by the way, I'm not predicting anything. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Trump, I guess Trump, Trump might win and whatever, they might keep the Senate. But like, if, if that upper range happens, um, just mechanically, they're going to get a ton done because they're not going to worry about, I mean, if they have 52, they can probably squeak through some big things on reconciliation. Basically, they'll probably lose mansion and cinema. So they don't really have a lot of room to wiggle for, for getting uh, something big done. My understanding is they're going to move pretty quickly. If they win the Senate, Biden wins. They're going to move pretty quickly to, to put forward a massive COVID stimulus bill, which will have a ton of green, renewable energy stuff in it. And the very popular corporate tax hike, which is among the Democratic uh, Senate, that is a very popular policy, bringing that back up to 28% as a pay for. So I I suspect they'll do something like that uh, with infrastructure piled in. And if they have a little bit of room to play, because you could get a no vote on the corporate tax hike from someone like a mansion, um, you know, they could get a lot done. But on the other hand, though, if it is you know, 55 seats, you know, a big wave election. That also means that they picked up a lot of close districts, whether it's Senate or House. And if they want to protect those, the worst thing they could do is lurch too far to the left. They could actually shut out the Republican Party for several cycles to come if they got all those seats, but then were able to hold on to them. But if they then pass all of these far left programs, they then leave an opening for the Republicans to come back in in two years and take back at least some of those House seats that were middle of the road and went to Biden, you know, because of the Biden wave rather this time, right? For sure. If, if Kevin McCarthy ever becomes Speaker of the House, it's it, probably because of a backlash election in 22 where he got an electorate that's, you know, railing against an abolished legislative filibuster, a whole ton of leftist policy, you know, maybe a packed Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, that argument makes some logical sense, but just it, some of these people, like, let's say, you know, I don't think he will, but let's say Bullock gets um, elected in, in Montana, you know, he's not exactly uh, a leftist. Um, he's a very moderate uh would be a very uh, pretty moderate senator, but he's also got six years until um, he's up again. And there's going to be huge amount of pressure to, particularly when it's wrapped around the badge of COVID and recovery to get something really big passed. So yeah. And the 22 map on the Senate side looks pretty bad for Republicans, no matter what happens this time around. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. I, I don't know that that kind of thinking will prevail. And let's take a quick pause to hear from our sponsor, Keeps. Take it away, Steve. Hey, guys. For those of you who have seen me on Fox News or uh, know what I look like, you know that losing my hair is not a big concern for me. But I have lots of friends who started losing their hair as early as their 20s and 30s, and it's panic time when that happens. Uh, No guy's ever ready to lose their hair. But thankfully, now there's Keeps. It's a simple and easy way to keep your hair. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. 
You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to the pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Prevention, of course, is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more of your hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatments start at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dispatch to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dispatch. Steve, any thoughts on Democratic side of this whole uh, thing that's happening in four days? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting to, to contemplate exactly what they do. I mean, you know, we talked about this a little bit on our, our podcast on Wednesday. You know, Biden's closing pitch really is, I, I want to heal the country. I want to help the country recover from this. I can bring people together. No red states and blue states, just the United States. And you wonder, maybe naively, whether that constrains him a little bit in his in his governance. I mean, if he's elected and then he implements, you know, something closer, so, something along the lines of what you're talking about, even. I mean, if it's just massive spending and, you know, sort of AOC pet projects, stuff ripped out of the Green New Deal that they can spend a bunch of money on, you know, I, th- I think that could, uh, they could face some pretty serious blowback because that's not, I mean, on the one hand, he's campaigned, you know, on, on big spending increases and he's, he's been a fairly progressive candidate who's spoken in centrist tones, but I'm not sure that's what people are voting for in, in this election. If they're voting for, uh, Joe Biden, particularly not independents and crossover Republicans. Yeah, and look, I'm watching to see some of his early personnel appointments because I think that will be a, a yeah. signal about how he intends to govern. So, you know, obviously there's been a lot of speculation about Elizabeth Warren for Treasury. Um, if he were to pick her, and I don't get the sense from talking to people in Biden's orbit that he will, but if he were to, it would be a pretty strong signal that uh, he's going to run against corporate America, that he yeah. is just going to stick up the middle finger to them and and really uh, pick a fight from the outset. Uh, I don't expect he'll do that. I think he'll try to um, make some selections that, that corporate America can live with. And again, I think it depends on what they do. I think that if there's – I don't know that the spending itself – is the kind of thing that would create a backlash because, boy, I mean, there's sure been a lot of spending under this president <laughs> right. and, and total Republican control. I think it's when you get into some of the more uh, creative environmental policies that, uh, that you could see that happening. There was a moment in Amy Coney Barrett's hearing at the end where Lindsey Graham and Dianne Feinstein embrace uh, which for some reason was one of the more shocking things to happen in that hearing because we hadn't seen a Democrat and a Republican speak cordially to each other, let alone like each other in a genuine moment. 
Do you think post-Trump we head back to at least some bipartisanship? Or do you think, in fact, things are about to move even further apart? Um, I don't see, look, I think the temperature will come down a little bit. I just think because of the nature of Biden versus Trump, if Biden wins, that he's just not as much of a lightning rod as Trump is. So I do think the temperature will come down, but will the basic structural dynamics of American politics and the incentive structure change that, you know, incentivizes a lot of these people to uh, treat their opponents like their enemies. Will that change? I don't really see that changing without, I don't know, uh, some major structural reforms which I have no prospect of happening. So <laughs> I don't think so. And actually, do you know, one thing I kind of get a sense of from some of these members anyway is the hatred is genuine now. It's not play acting. They actually believe, and more in the House, I would say, than the Senate, but they actually believe that these people are evil. Um, and th- there is a real, th- this is not play acting at this point, um, particularly when you get into like the House Intelligence Committee and the two sides of that uh, committee. I mean, this is, this is deeply, deeply personal at this point. So I don't see it changing. Well, that's depressing. Thank you. <laughs> it is depressing. Well, and, and and you add in that disinformation environment where attention follows outrage, right? Uh, you you want to get attention, you want to make a name for yourself. You say the most outrageous thing so you can get the most attention. Do it on social media. Do it on the cable news channels, and everything is incentivized in that direction. Well, this is the Lindsey Graham. I mean, look at Lindsey Graham's fundraising strategy right now. It's it's going on Hannity and Ingram and 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 telling people his website. Literally and, asking for money. And yes. Literally asking for money, but but like he's only allowed to sort of you know have that profile because he's basically spent 12 months going, and this has actually annoyed some Republican people in the Republican base, is he goes on Hannity, you know, every second night and says, you know, it's coming, just stay tuned, you know, and, and sort of, yeah. so now you have this Republican base that's basically been, you know, conditioned to believe and salivating over the idea that, John Brennan and Barack Obama are going to be sort of dragged out in handcuffs. And as election day approaches and it becomes more and more clear that's not going to happen, you have this sense of uh, disorientation and anger, um, you know, partly whipped up by uh, false expectation setting. So now we've we've spent a good chunk of time talking about the potential Biden presidency, but it is the case that the election hasn't happened yet. you know, I think we have this conversation because the, the polls are pretty clear. And if the polls are right or even close to right, we're going to be looking at a Biden presidency. But there's a chance Donald Trump is reelected. If if Trump is reelected on Tuesday, what is it that that we all missed? What is it beyond just like disastrous polling? Um, if he's reelected, what are we talking about on Wednesday or Thursday? Well, it is. I think the story will be the polling because the only reason the conversation has happened this way is because every public poll, with the exception of Trafalgar, I mean, I guess the guy who runs Trafalgar will be a a newly minted uh, millionaire uh, (laughs) and will have four years of dining out on how brilliant he is, kind of like Rasmussen had because they had a good election in 2016. No one mentions how catastrophic 
they performed in 2018. But, you know, whatever, you pick Trump as the winner. So um, I'd want to be the guy from Trafalgar um, at that point. But um, <laughs> I, I think that it will be a, a massive conversation about po- polling and, and modeling of the electorate, because what, what it will have revealed is that the fundamental assumptions that people were making about the composition of the electorate, the architecture of the electorate were wrong. And it will be because there have been, there, there was, even though pretty much every pollster after 2016 uh, adjusted their models to right. wait for education, right, to, to make sure that there was uh, more of a waiting for white non-college educated voters who, who brought Trump to the presidency. So if, if even after that adjustment, we have a situation where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who didn't vote in 2016 in the upper Midwest who who perfectly fit the profile of a Trump voter, you know, white men, no college degree, you know, turn up and vote and overwhelm uh, the the Biden vote. It would just be a huge conversation about about how we use polling and and you know, it'll be actually an existential conversation for the industry. So one of the things that I think makes the polls more likely to be accurate this time is actually the record high turnout. If the number of actual voters becomes that close to the number of registered voters, then polls of registered voters don't need to wait for a likely electorate. It is weighted by definition when you uh, use the voter rolls to reach out to people. Um, That being said, I do wonder if aside from just the polling, there will be sort of another reckoning within the media of how it approached the selection, uh, as you said, very reliant on polls, understandably so. It's sort of the the data that we have to some extent. But there is this issue where you know, and Pew has done these studies. Uh, some insane number of reporters live in a county that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. They don't have friends who are Trump voters. They don't uh, own guns. They don't know anyone who owns guns. You know, there's like the the group of people giving the news are not representative of the country either. And I wonder if that would be another piece of the reckoning. Well, I'd be scared. I'm actually quite skeptical of that. I'm not skeptical of what you just said. They're, they're all facts, but, um, but I'm skeptical that it's, it's um, created an environment where people have given um, Biden too much of a chance of winning or dismissed Trump's chances of winning. I, you know, John Harris, a political, I thought uh, has accurately pointed out that actually given the data, how overwhelmingly bad it is for Trump. <laughs> the media has been remarkably uh, <laughs> insistent upon continuing to say that he has a chance of winning. Right. And we've done the same. Like there have been far fewer obituaries written for Donald Trump this time around than 2016, even though his polling situation is objectively empirically worse than it was in 2016 and is not moving. You know, the polls aren't move, like in the way that the Clinton polls were tightening at the end. Uh, it's not that we're not seeing the same dynamic here. So I, I mean, look, that's all true. And you could, and uh, there could be a reckoning over whether coverage is biased and, and things of that nature. But I don't think it's, I don't think that that has caused people to overstate, um, Trump's chances of losing. There's a rift. Yeah. There's a rift among Republicans, um, Trump supporters right now in these closing days has really existed for the past week plus on how much time he should spend talking about the uh, Hunter Biden accusations that he's made. And you had the president raise this during one of his rallies yesterday where he said, you know, all these these candidates who I beat 
in 2016 are calling me and telling me I should stop talking about Hunter Biden and start talking about the economy. And, you know, you went on to say, there's a reason I beat them. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to keep talking about Hunter Biden. How, how pronounced is that as we get closer to election day? Is that, is that split as big as it seems to be? I mean, I suppose I have a fairly small, you know, sample size, uh, you know, of Trump advisors, but, um, I can tell you before his second debate, at least one of his top advisors had a conversation with him and urged him, urged him to stop with the Russia stuff, stop with the Hillary emails, stop with Hunter, just talk about the economy. That's what people care about. It's what you have an advantage over Biden on. And, you know, Trump throughout his presidency has dismissed a lot of political advice because in his mind, and you know, you can see why he believes this, as he calls them, these great geniuses, he always uses that phrase, right. my, my great geniuses tell me I need to, you know, dripping with sarcasm, tell me I need to do this. And he almost takes pleasure in thumbing his nose at them. So this is really no different. I remember in the lead up to the 2018 midterms, Trump, <laughs> someone I, this is someone who's like one of his probably someone he consults more just more than just about anyone on, on politics. I was having a conversation with them and they were telling me about this conversation they had with the president where they were trying to ex- persuade him to talk about um, the economy, the great economy and, and wh- what he's going to do leading into the midterms. And Trump said to them, you know, when I get up and talk about that, uh, you know, my people get bored. My people get bored. <laughs> he's talking about his rallies. And, you know, so, and so the way Trump, uh, gets a feel for what resonates is very visceral. It, it's what gets the crowd roaring at his debates. And turns out crowds don't roar when you talk about tax policy, <laughs> but when you say that Hunter Biden is, you know, uh, uh, courting, you know, uh, you know, Chinese criminals in his garage, that tends to get a little bit more, uh, a bit more of the juices flowing. So it's really it's not what Trump, what comes out of Trump's mouth is not data driven. You'll be shocked to hear it's, it's purely informed by what gets the crowd roaring, what gets his own juices flowing. The one exception to that was his aides really did give him a big talking to after the first debate. Um, and they had internal polling, which was catastrophic. It just went sharply down and they just said, for the love of God, stop interrupting him. Let him talk. <laughs> let him hang himself and be more calm. And he actually was. I mean, second debate, Trump was actually much more, um, you know, obviously grading on a curve, much more restrained. <laughs> okay, you have two questions to go. Last substantive question, the tech companies. What happens after this election when it seems like both sides are very frustrated with big tech, so to speak, social media, disinformation, uh, conspiracy theories, even if they don't agree on what the disinformation is and what the conspiracy theories are. So I think, um, I think, uh, policy with respect to big tech, uh, could continue in a reasonably straight line under Biden. They've, they've got, as you know, um, the big uh, antitrust case against Google, which I think Biden's uh, DOJ will continue. And then you've got a couple of uh, antitrust investigations going on at the FTC with respect to Facebook and Amazon. I I can see a Biden administration continuing with those. Um, 
I think there'll be less sort of whining about tech. But as 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 it relates to stuff that actually matters, the policy actions, I could see uh, I could see a fairly straight line. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, the Bradley Foundation. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, a Bradley speaker series, offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode, which features Andy McCarthy speaking on the breakdown in respect for the rule of law and related social and judicial issues. McCarthy is a best-selling author, a senior fellow at National Review Institute, and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. In this episode, he addresses the characterization of Antifa, the dangers of court packing, and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And he also provides perspective on the latest developments in the Russia investigation. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. Okay, now the most important question. So, Jonathan, uh, we have sort of a 16 going on 17 thing with our two households. My son is two months older than your daughter. I'm, true. I'm sure they'll be going to proms together and whatnot until your daughter rejects my son <laughs> because she's going to be so much cooler than my nerd of a son. <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 jury's, jury's out on that. <laughs> He's going to listen to this, you know. <laughs> uh, but because of all that, I happen to know that it's your wife's birthday tomorrow. It is true. Uh, and I just have to know, and I think I speak on behalf of all dispatch listeners, for such a momentous occasion, you know, her first birthday after becoming a mother, do you take her to the most well-known, well-regarded Australian steakhouse in the United States and get her an awesome blossom? Um, <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to say I actually have taken her to Outback Steakhouse <laughs> on one of her birthdays. I did it I did it as a joke um, and she really appreciated it. And one of my main complaints is this horrible chain has convinced Americans that we eat something called Bloomin' Onions, which don't exist in Australia. Uh, most of their menu doesn't exist in Australia, including the, the, the beer, Foster's. It is, honestly, it's a total disgrace, that chain, but um, no, wait, Betsy wait, likes it. Foster's doesn't exist? No, Australians don't drink Fosters. It's, it's, it's something that people overseas drink <laughs> and they think is Australian. You cannot you go to a pub in Australia. You cannot order a Fosters. They don't exist. Whoa. It's a joke. <laughs> um, anyway, Outback, I have many problems with Outback Steakhouse, but uh, Betsy likes it, so we'll see. All right, well, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I won't ruin the surprise. I'll, yeah. I won't tell her. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, I'm Jonathan. I'm glad this is off the record, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I should totally. have asked that at the start. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. Jonathan Swan of Axios. You should absolutely be subscribing to their newsletters and check out all of his great interviews on HBO. Thanks, guys. 